I'm Joe Carter, one of the pastors for our location. It's an honor to be with you as we come together and encounter God through his word. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Mark chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verses 33 through 38. One of the fundamental rules of preaching is to know your audience. Sermons aren't supposed to be so generic that they can be preached anywhere to anybody. To be effective, a sermon needs to be crafted for a specific congregation. And they must be prepared with a certain group in mind and with their context in mind. And that makes it hard to do here at NBC Arlington um, because the people here are intelligent, sophisticated, and highly educated. And often requires me to prepare a sermon that is above my level. And sometimes when I'm, after I'm done preaching, I often feel like I need to go to a church member and say, did you understand this sermon I preached today? Uh, can you explain it to me now? <laughs> today I want to take a different approach, though. The topic is so weighty and so important that I want to make sure that the sermon is as comprehensible as possible. I want to, to preach in such a way that even I can understand this message. And that doesn't mean I'm going to dumb it down. As Albert Einstein once said, Everything should be made as simple as possible, but not simpler. I want to present this topic in such a way that it's simple, but it doesn't misrepresent the text. And it doesn't misrepresent what God wants to hear, hear us or say to us through this text. And I want to keep this message simple because our passage this morning is about the greatest event in human history. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The death of Jesus is both the ugliest crime ever committed and the most beautiful thing that's ever happened on our planet. It's a subject that leads us to want to shout with praise and to be silent in the face of such horror. The crucifixion, along with its second part, the resurrection, is the most unexpected, inexplicable, and ultimately amazing thing that has ever happened in human history. How do we even begin to talk about something like that? Well, if we follow Mark's example, we do so in as simple a way as possible. As we'll see, Mark describes the crucifixion in a mere seven sentences. And perhaps he recognized that adding more words wouldn't add more weights. It wouldn't necessarily increase our understanding. You simply can't fit all that needs to be said about the cross into a short passage or to a short sermon. Yet while we can't consider everything that needs to be said, I want us to consider four important questions related to the death of Jesus on the cross. And those four questions are the who question. Who exactly died on the cross? The what question. What did Jesus' death accomplish? The why question. Why did Jesus have to die? And the how question. How did his death accomplish his objective? In searching for these answers, these four questions, we need to understand four key concepts. The Son of Man, satisfaction, substitution, and salvation. And once we understand those four concepts and how they all fit together, we can have a deeper and more profound understanding of what happened on the cross and what it means to us. Before we search for those answers, though, let me pray for our time together. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing us to come together today to worship you. As we read your holy word, we ask that you open our eyes and soften our hearts 
that we can see the beauty and truth within your scripture. Help us to leave here today with a greater appreciation of love you showed us through the sacrifice of your son on the cross. In your son's holy name we pray, amen. So the past two months, we've been talking about how Mark has described the events that led up to the death of Jesus. And as theologian James Edwards says, since the arrest of Jesus, Mark has narrated the passion as an antiphony between the witness of Jesus and the human responses to Jesus. An antiphony refers to a style of music in which two groups of voices or instruments respond to each other in turn. It's like a musical conversation where one calls and the other responds. And we see this sometimes in praise songs where a worship leader like Luke issues a call and the congregation responds. Or we see it at a football game on one side chance offense and the other side chance defense. These are sides are engaging in an antiphonal chant. And we see the same thing with Jesus in the responses to him leading up to the cross. The first antiphony with Jesus' confession before the Jewish leaders, followed by the mockery and maltreatment by them and by Peter's denial of Jesus. And the second was his appearance before the Roman governor, Pilate, followed by shouts from the crowd for his death and mockery and maltreatment from the Roman soldiers. And the third antiphony was when Jesus was initially nailed to the cross and when those surrounding him would mock him. And it's today's passage. We're going to see the final two antiphonies. Now, four of these human responses are mocking and hostile to Jesus. But the last one is one we wouldn't have seen coming. And we're going to read verses 33 through 39. And I'm going to separate these verses so that you can see and get a clear picture of how Mark structures this passage. This is the word of the Lord. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemi sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw this, in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. And notice in the typical fast-paced, breathless style of Mark that each of his lines starts with and. This reminds us that all these events are connected and that the narrative is moving briskly. And also notice that the climax of this passage doesn't come where we'd expect it to come. And let's look at each line a little more closely. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Mark begins by letting us know the time and the setting for the crucifixion. The sixth hour was about noon. So this was a time when the sun would be highest in the sky, and yet there's a darkness over all the land until about 3 p.m. And this darkness signals the absence of God the Father and his judgment on the crucifixion. As the prophet Amos foretold, in that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon 
and darken the broad daylight. Mark then says, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In saying this, Jesus is quoting from the first part of Psalm 22. And these words have been known as a cry of desolation for it reflects the complete loneliness Jesus felt on the cross. And this is why he struggled so much in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew on the cross he would face for the first time the complete absence of the Father. In just a few minutes, we're going to talk about why Jesus suffered such alienation from the Father. But for now, we need to consider what it must have felt like for Jesus. The Father is the source of all that is good. He's the source of all that is beautiful. He's the source of all that is comforting. To have that stripped away was more painful than any lashes on his back. And that was more painful than the nails in his hands and in his feet. It's no exaggeration to say that the emotions Jesus experienced on the cross were unparalleled in human history. No one has ever known such profound loneliness. No one has ever endured such overwhelming grief. No one has ever felt emotional pain of that magnitude. And that's why Jesus can understand the worst emotional pain you've ever been through. He can empathize with your worst heartbreaks and your losses. He can empathize with your deepest sorrow and your darkest moments. He can empathize with your loneliness and your feelings of abandonment. He knows exactly what you're suffering because he suffered it too on the cross. Jesus Christ leads to the fourth antiphonal response from the crowd. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And I think the reason why Mark gives the Aramaic, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, is because it helps us clarify why some of the bystanders thought he was calling Elijah. The Aramaic term Eli sounds a bit like the Aramaic for Eli, for Elijah. Now, the book of 2 Kings tells that the prophet Elijah was taken up by God into heaven without dying. And there was a popular belief at the time of the crucifixion. The Jews believed that at times of crisis, Elijah would come back and rescue the righteous. And the bystanders seem to think that's what Jesus is asking for. He's asking for Elijah to come and spare him from this suffering and this pain. Because the crowd doesn't yet get why Jesus is here and what he's doing on the cross. Next, Mark says, And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Now, sour wine was a cheap, common beverage that was used as a refreshing drink for soldiers and laborers. So most likely this was sour wine that was set around for the soldiers to drink. And by giving Jesus something to drink, they were trying to keep him conscious. And it's unclear in this passage whether they did so because they were trying to mock him or they were trying to comfort him. But it doesn't change what happens next. As Mark tells, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Here we come to the lowest point in the story, the death of Jesus. And we would expect this would be the climax of this passage and the climax of the gospel of Mark. The climax of a story is the point of greatest tension or drama. 
A climax is when the, the main conflict is resolved. But the way Mark has structured this passage, there's still more to come. The climax hasn't happened yet. Immediately after the death of Jesus, as Mark adds, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Jesus dies and a curtain tears. And this may seem like some random fact, but the reason Mark includes it is because it has deep theological and symbolic significance. Now, there were two main massive curtains in the temple. And one separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And this separated the high priest was only allowed to go in there on one day a year on the day of atonement. And there was another curtain before the court of Israel. And that curtain was embroidered with tapestry that depicted the earth, the sea, and all the heavens, the entire universe. And both curtains were called veils because they acted as a barrier. They acted as a veil separating God from man. They kept God in. And they kept man out. And it's not clear which veil exactly Mark is talking about in this passage. But I think that we have reason to believe he's talking about the veil on the court of Israel. Now, this was the veil that was public that everybody would see, whereas the other veil, only the high priest would see it. And I also think Mark is connecting the tearing of this veil with the baptism of Jesus. Now, the baptism of Jesus is the only other time in the gospel of Mark where he used the same word, torn. At the beginning of his gospel, Mark says that Jesus is being baptized by John in the Jordan River. And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And notice that the heavens are torn apart and it's revealed that Jesus is the son of God. And when Jesus dies, something similar occurs. The curtain in the temple, the curtain that had images of heavens on it, is torn just like the heavens were torn. And what happens next? Jesus revealed the Son of God. Not by the Father this time, but by a Roman soldier. And when Jesus died, the veil of the temple was torn in two, removing the barrier that separated God from man. But in Jesus' death, the veil is literally torn so that the man could see the presence of God directly. The New Testament book of Hebrews refers to the very body of Jesus as a veil that hid the deity of Jesus from the eyes of men. And when Jesus' body is broken, when that veil is torn, that barrier was removed. Humans could now see that Jesus is God. And that leads us to our final antipathy. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. This is the surprising climax of the gospel of Mark. This is the dramatic turning point, the point where the conflict is resolved and the narrative purpose is reached. And it occurs not with the death of Jesus. It occurs with the confession of a Roman soldier. Mark hasn't just been telling us some story about some human. He's showing us how God has revealed himself through Jesus. And from the very beginning of this gospel, Mark has told us where this story is going. The very verse, first verse of the book of Mark reads, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the son of God. 
And two other times in the Gospel of Mark, we see God the Father acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God. We see this baptism. We see this at the baptism of Jesus in Mark 1.11. And we see this at the transfiguration of Jesus in Mark 9.7. And there are also three times when the demons confess Jesus as God. They all call him the Son of God. So we see both the light and the dark sides of the spiritual realm confessing and acknowledging Jesus as God, as the Son of God. But until the centurion on the cross, no human in the Gospel of Mark has recognized Jesus as the Son of God. And this hasn't been an accident. Jesus has stifled speculation about his identity because such announcements were premature. It is only when we get to the cross, only when we get to the death of Jesus, do we get to the point where we can fully understand what it meant for him to be the son of God. And now we have the first answer to the question, the who question, who died on the cross? And the answer is that the God man, Jesus died on the cross because only a God man could save us. For Jesus to be the son of God means that Jesus himself is God. Yet the centurion knew that he was a man. The soldier had just witnessed the torture, crucifixion, and death of a human being. The centurion knew Jesus was a man, and yet he confessed him as God. And he was right on both counts. Jesus is fully human, and Jesus is fully God. Jesus is the God-man. As God the Son, Jesus had been around for all of eternity. But he had only been a man for about 33 years. Jesus only became a man when he chose to take on human flesh and be born of a woman named Mary in the Jewish city of Bethlehem. And why did he do that? Why did the Son of God choose to become a human being? One intriguing answer to that question came during the Middle Ages. A brilliant theologian named Anselm of Canterbury said that the main reason God became man was because of the justice of God. I think that's a correct answer, but it takes some explaining to understand what he means by that. And when we talk about God's justice, we're talking about his character, about who God is. Everything God is, is determined by his character and flows from his character. And that's true also for God's justice. We can say that God's justice is his eternal, uncompromising commitment to always do what is right. God is always just because God is always going to do what is right. And God himself is also the standard for what is right because God himself is intrinsically good. And because God is the standard, his goodness is an expression of his character. Now, if we humans want to know what good looks like, we look to God. But how does God ensure that he's meeting the standard for goodness? Well, he does the same thing. He looks to himself. He looks to his own standard of goodness, which is his character. And God must look within himself and be satisfied that the standard for goodness is being met. And justice means that God is satisfied that the right thing has been done. And this is easy to understand because God's self-satisfaction is probably not the way we think of it. 
Because today the word satisfaction is primarily understood to mean the pleasant feeling you get when you get something you want. We tend to think of satisfaction as used in advertising, where a product comes with satisfaction guaranteed, or service comes with 100% customer satisfaction. But that's not the way satisfaction is used in the Bible. Within scripture, satisfaction is used to refer to making amends or rectifying a situation. If you satisfy a creditor, you pay them all that they were owed. You've satisfied that debt. And that's how the concept of satisfaction applies to sin. We owe a debt because of our sin. We owe a debt to God. And that debt has to be satisfied. Yet only God knows exactly what it takes to satisfy that debt. There's no outside standard he can look to to say, this standard has been met. He himself is the standard. He alone can say when a debt has been satisfied. Another way to say this is that he has to satisfy himself. And we see this language in places like Ezekiel 5.13 where God says, Thus shall my anger spend itself, and I will vent my fury upon them and satisfy myself. So if God merely has to satisfy himself, why can't he just wave his hand and say, don't worry about it. I'll pretend this debt you owe never existed. He can't do that because of his character. God is always committed to doing what is right. That's his nature. That's his character. Anything that is in opposition to God's character is evil and wrong. Anything that is in opposition to God's character is sin. Sin is anytime we do something wrong that is in opposition to God's character. If God allowed the debt of sin to go unpaid, it would be saying that sin doesn't matter. It also would be saying that God's character doesn't matter. That holiness and goodness doesn't matter. It would be saying that God is willing to forever turn a blind eye to evil and suffering and injustice and pretend that none of it really matters. It would mean that good and evil have no meaning. In other words, it would be saying that God is not good, that God is not worthy of our worship. If God allowed that debt of owed by sin to go unpaid, he would cease to be good. He would cease to be himself. And that's something he can't do. Fortunately, God is just, and God is righteous. And since he is righteous, he is committed to always doing what is good. So he's going to punish sin. He has to extract the due payment for sin. And since all of us have committed sins, God must pass judgment on us. Paul says in Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin are death. A wage is something you earn. Paul is saying when you sin, you earn death. You get death coming to you. But by death, Paul isn't just talking about physical death. Paul's primarily talking about spiritual death. He's talking about alienation from God. Separation from the love and goodness of God. And because God is the source of all that is good and all that is lovely, all that is pure and true, that means being separated from God means we're separated from all that is good and beautiful and true. Because we sin, 
God must pass judgment on us. And because we've sinned, we've earned that wage of death. We've earned spiritual death. What we are owed is eternal separation from the love and affections of God. Which means we sinners are without hope. Well, at least we would be. But God has a plan. God loves us and wants to rescue us from spiritual death. He wants to save us from what is coming to us. Yet God also hates sin. And he must be true to his character by punishing sin. He wants, as we mentioned earlier, to satisfy himself, to be consistent with his character by doing what is right. He wants to save us and he wants to satisfy himself. How can he do both? As I said, God's justice is his commitment to always doing what is right. He can't compromise on that because he cannot violate his own nature. God is just, so justice must be done. And that's the right thing to do is punish sin, so God is going to punish sin. And as I also mentioned, the Bible is clear that the wages of sin are death. Sin creates a debt, and that debt is spiritual death. What we owe because of our sin is eternal separation from God and his love and affection. That's a debt we cannot pay. And because sin creates that debt, that's a debt that no sinner can repay. And therein lies the problem. For justice to be done, the debt has to be paid. We humans owe the debt, but we can't pay it. God can pay it, but God doesn't owe it. What we need is someone who is fully human and someone who is also fully God. And so that's who God the Father sends us to pay the debt on our behalf. And now we have the answer to the why question. Why did Jesus have to die? Jesus died to satisfy the debt created by our sin. Look at the first part of John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God the Father loved us so much that he sent his son to become the God-man, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is both fully human and fully God. So he meets the qualifications necessary to pay the debt. And how does he pay that debt for us? Through substitution. Jesus pays our debt through substitution. He takes our place. During the American Civil War, men who got drafted but were wealthy enough or influential enough could pay another man to take their place in the war. And this was called a substitute volunteer enlistment. A man could avoid the service they were owed by finding someone else to be their substitute. And that's similar to what Jesus did for us. God substituted himself for us. He took our place of judgment. As the theologian John Stott says, the concept of substitution may be said to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. 
Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone. God accepts penalties that belong to man alone. I think about what that means. In our hatred for God, we say that we should rightfully take his place. We ignorantly say to the creator and sustainer of the universe, I don't need you. I know better than you how I should live. I know better than you how I should think and how I should feel and how I should act. And we think we are capable of being substitutes for God. And in response to the stupid and evil rebellion, how does God respond? He responds in love. In his love for us, God says that he will satisfy the demands for justice by taking our place. We deserve punishment, so he'll be punished in our place. We deserve death, so he will die in our place. We deserve eternal separation from him, so God the Father will allow himself to be separated from God the Son. And here we find the the answer to the how question. How did Jesus' death on the cross accomplish his purpose? Jesus paid our debt through substitution by dying in our place. Taking the punishment for us was the only way that God could satisfy his justice and satisfy his love for us. That's what we should see when we look at the cross. That's why when we look at the cross, we see something horrible and beautiful. It's horrible because the son of God had to suffer and die for our sins, for the debt we owe. And it's beautiful because it shows the unfathomable love God has for us, that he would take upon himself the punishment that we are owed. This amazing substitution was necessary to achieve God's purpose on the cross. And here we have the answer to the final question, the what question. What did the death of Jesus accomplish? And the answer is that Jesus' death paid the debt to obtain the salvation of sinners. Now, salvation in a broad sense means rescue from danger. And in the Bible, salvation primarily means rescue from three things. Salvation means we are rescued from the power of sin. We are rescued from the power of Satan. And we are rescued from the wrath of God. And scripture also makes it clear that those who have been put their faith in Jesus have been saved, are being saved, and will be saved. The debt for all of your sins, past, present, and future, has been wiped away. The power over Satan has over you, now and forever, has been broken. And the wrath of God is something you will never, ever have to worry about. That's what Jesus did when he rescued you by dying on the cross. There's so much more that needs to be said. And this is just a glimpse at the meaning of the cross. But for now, let's focus on the simple yet profound answers we found in the four questions. Who exactly died on the cross? Jesus, the God-man, died on the cross. The why question, why did he have to die? Jesus died to satisfy the debt created by sin. The what question. What did his death accomplish? Jesus' debt paid the, the debt to obtain the salvation of sinners. 
And the how question. How did his death accomplish this objective? Jesus paid our debt through substitution by dying in our place. Now, if we wanted to summarize all the answers into one statement, we could say that the salvation of sinners comes through substitution by the Son of God for the satisfaction of sin. The salvation of sinners comes through substitution by the Son of God for the satisfaction of sin. And if that's too complicated, a simpler approach would be to say sinners can be rescued because Jesus took our place to pay the debt owed to God for our sins. Sinners can be rescued because Jesus took our place to pay the debt we owe to God for our sins. We were rescued from the power of sin, rescued from the power of Satan, and rescued from the wrath of God. But we were also rescued for a purpose. We were rescued to have eternal life in the presence of God, whereas Psalm 1611 tells us there's fullness of joy. There's pleasures forevermore. Earlier, I quoted from the first part of Romans 623, the wages of sin are death. But the complete verse says, for the wage of sin is is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. All that Jesus accomplished on the cross was for your benefit. It was to rescue you so that God could give you that gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ. You can't earn that gift. There's nothing you can do to make yourself worthy of that. All you can do is accept it. How do you do that? How do you accept that gift? You accept the free gift of salvation by doing two, three, three things. Repent, believe, and confess. And the first requirement for salvation is that we must repent of our sins. As Charles Spurgeon once explained, repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we have committed it, a resolution to forsake it. It is, in fact, a change of mind of a very deep and practical character, which makes the man love what he once hated and hate what he once loved. And the second requirement is that we believe in the gospel. At its briefest, the gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ, that he is the son of God and became a man for us, that he died for us on a cross in order to restore the relationship to God, and that he was raised from the dead and established as Lord over all things. And the last requirement is that we must confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord. To confess that Jesus is Lord, we must believe that he is the son of God. He is the supreme authority over all that exists, and he is the supreme authority over our lives. Repent of your sins. Believe the gospel. Confess Jesus is Lord. You don't need to be intelligent, sophisticated, or highly educated to do those three things. You just need to be humble, obedient, and repentant. There's nothing to make you more humble, make you more repentant, and make you want to obey Jesus more than looking at the cross. 
Look to the cross to see how the Son of God suffered for you. Look to the cross to see how the God the Father poured out his wrath on his beloved Son for you. And look to the cross and see that God did all this because of his unmeasurable and unfathomable love for you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for sending your one and only son to take our place on the cross and pay the debts for our sin. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross demonstrates the depths of your love for us. Thank you for sending your son to be a substitute for us and pay the debt we owe. We thank you that through his death, we can be reconciled to you and receive the gift of eternal life. And we ask that the Holy Spirit continues working in our hearts so that we will turn from our sins, believe the gospel, and confess Jesus as Lord. Helps to daily pick up our own cross and follow Christ. And grow us to be more like Jesus every day. And we pray this in the most powerful name. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our crucified and raised Savior. Amen.